0: Uh, My name is Alex Dick, and I'm a writer, I guess, of sorts, as well as a few other things. But, um, as you probably all know these days, a writer just can't be a writer. Um, They have to have an online media presence as well, Um, which actually I'm more than happy to do, because I love that kind of thing. So, just to add to all that, I thought I'd start doing a podcast for the first few episodes. I'm delighted to present to you a few stories that I've written and I'm going to be reading them a la a talking book and they're purely for your enjoyment. I'm sure later down the track we'll get to some more interesting things um, but for now you're stuck with just listening to some of the stories. Now um, I had these stories published in like a little anthology of my short stories in about 2013. It was called Roger's Guide to the Coffee Shops of Soho. Uh, Hopefully some of you might have read it but if you haven't then um, get in touch. Contact at headstock.online and I'm sure I can send you a copy. Now, um, I've got a copy right here in my hands. Um, now, of course, I am trying to boost my online presence. So it'd be remiss of me not to um, plug my Patreon campaign. Let me just ring it up here. So it's patreon.com slash alexdickwriting. That's patreon.com slash A-L-E-X-D-I-C-K-W-R-I-T-I-N-G. And that's all one word. Because if you put spaces into your browser, then it doesn't work. Okay, cool. Alright, enough of me waffling on. I'm going to get to reading the story. This first story is called The Freight of Your Life. Harry hated talking to investors. His mouth dried as he regurgitated facts and statistics that barely brushed the surface of what goes on in the lab. He knew they weren't really listening anyway. What they wanted to see wasn't in the secondary labs amongst the jars of dissected body parts and the monkey test stations. What they had come for was in the cerebellum room, the core of the deep underground building. He swiped his card against the wall and immediately the doors pushed open and his glasses fogged up. There it stood, in the middle of the room, near completion. He could tell the investors were impressed. And why shouldn't they be? A single, lone eye, completely mechanical, suspended above an empty case. An empty case where the brain was to go. We decided to start with just an eye and an ear. That way we can teach it things. There's also output on the computers behind the window there, which will eventually attach to the mouth, but for the moment it'll be a bit like talking on an internet chat site said Larry. The investors nodded in wonder. When can we talk to it? asked one. The great news is we're expected to be connected within the month, aren't we, Dave? Larry said as he thumped twice on the counter. A man in overalls wheeled his way out from under a computer bench, as a mechanic does from under a car. Too right, said Dave. Dave, this is Mr and Mrs Stokes Bromley, all the way from England. Pleasure to meet you, Dave winked and went back under the bench to do some work. Dave was with us on the Maxwell's Demon project. We needed someone with experience in microengineering, and brought him along again for this one. We'd better leave him to it. You know, genius at work and all that. They advanced closer to the eye, and without warning, it made a slow, purposeful wink. The investors looked a little unnerved. The eyelid sent a breeze through the chilly air. How does it know to wink without the brain? It's as near as we've come to making a real eye mechanically, "'We we have to keep it at a good temperature and moist too. "'The winking had to be programmed separately to keep it fresh.' "'As Larry spoke, his assistant Sally swiped through the doors "'and came hurriedly towards them. "'And here is the life of the party. How are you, Sal?' said Larry. "'Larry, I've got to... can we have a word?' "'She said as she hinted towards the investors.' ''Of course. Apologies, Mr. and Mrs. Stokes Bromley. I'm going to have to cut you short. It was great to meet you both, and thank you for your continued interest in artificial intelligence. Dave will kindly see you out.'' An audible sigh came from under Dave's workstation, and he reluctantly got up and showed the couple away. ''Everything going okay, Sally?'' asked Larry, although in the back of his head he knew what she was about to say. ''The brain in the aeroplane. Gone. It died.'' Died! I can't believe it. Why? What was it? The pressure in the cargo hold, just as we feared. It was just too much, said Sally. Dave came back into the room with a worried look on his face. Is it what I think it is? The three of them sat down and discussed the brain. It had been constructed in Japan and was to be transported that day via a private airline. It had to be done in Japan. They were the only people with the equipment precise enough to create what they had dubbed mechanical meat. However, the laws in Japan prevent the creation of a free-thinking life-form, and the producers had to look elsewhere for the project to flower, and they came up with the CSIRO in Hobart. The trouble being, the mechanical meat used to make the brain, just like real meat, had a shelf life. It would only last four days outside a body, and it seemed now that it would not withstand the change in pressure during air transportation. "'So what do we do, guys?' asked Sally. "'And you say we can't take the lab over there?' ''Definitely?'' asked Dave. ''We just don't have the money now to start all this from scratch. Even if we did, the Japanese wouldn't let it go ahead,'' said Larry. ''Well, shit,'' said Sally, and paced around the room. She jangled the keys around in her pocket as she thought. ''What if we ask Rolf?'' she said. Dave sighed. Larry rolled his eyes. Grudgingly, they all headed for the artist suite.'' Rolf paced up and down his suite, looking smugly in the air as he prophesied thus The religious could never have done what I did. You were right to model the brain on mine. The trouble with the religious is that they believe in the soul, not in the human body, as a series of electrical impulses that can be switched off and on like a light bulb. The brain works on two levels. I liken it to when I learnt my first European language. (laughs) The first level still thinks in English and translates each word one by one as you recall it. Then the brain arranges each translated word into the correct grammar before you can form a sentence. You almost have to input the information manually and consciously for it to come out the other end making sense. But the second level of consciousness is intuition. And after a while of training on the first level, the information becomes second nature and can be processed effortlessly. The brain uses both of these levels simultaneously, and indefinitely, and imperceptibly, and constantly as a loop, apart from during sleep hours when the first level takes a rest and the curious depths of the second level are explored, never quite reaching a conclusion, but always calculating until the light bulb is switched out at death. Where is the place for the soul in all of this? The imagination is perhaps the third level where the brain takes all the information and uses it to create its own weird truths, a way of coping with all the things that the two other levels just can't explain. He took a puff of a huge cigar and blew smoke out the window. Rolf had been a painter and a philosopher, but had been with the project now for about five years, living isolated in the suite, having his thoughts monitored and recorded. Yes, Rolf, can you just listen to us for a moment? Do you have any ideas... We've got only two more chances with this brain before the whole thing gets closed down, said Sally. Ah, yes, when the science boffins fail, they come once again to probe the mind of a free thinker, said Rolf, unfurling the words with an air of superiority. Just talk normal English to us, please, said Dave. You are going to bring the brain back to Australia by... Boat! Don't be silly, said Larry. From Nagasaki to here, it's got to be at least two and a half... Three weeks at sea, the brain will only last for four days at the most. Have you ever heard of how the Spaniards cured the smallpox virus in their colonies at the turn of the 19th century? They came up with a vaccine. They gathered together about 20 orphans and inoculated one. Then, on the journey, day by day, and one by one, they passed the virus between the orphans, thus keeping it alive in each orphan and transferring it just before the immune system could destroy it. Rolf took another puff. "'Where do we get twenty orphans from at this hour?' said Dave. "'You'll figure something out,' said Rolf. The mist-covered port of Nagasaki. The fresh, morning air made a chill go along Larry's spine. He checked again in the hold, where Sally was doing the last-minute preparations. Twenty-one days at sea, seven empty cells, an operating theatre the learning room, and, at the back, the secure vault where the brain was currently being stored. Now all they needed was the bodies. Would you ever eat that fish here? You know, the one they have that kills you if they cook it wrong. Apparently it doesn't always kill you completely. They lay you out for a few days before they bury you, just in case you get back up, said Dave. You're not helping, said Larry. Sorry, I I just feel uneasy. Nervous, you know. What time was this guy coming? What's his name? "'Doyobi, uh, he should be here in about three minutes,' said Larry. "'With the bodies?' said Dave. "'Shut it,' said Larry. "'They're not really orphans, are they?' "'No, they're adults, and no, I don't know where they came from. "'Just don't ask,' said Larry. "'Are you sure Doyobi has to come with us?' "'Shh, he's here,' said Larry. "'The truck pulled up, and a large man jumped out. "'Larry ran to introduce himself, but was greeted with a very cold response.' The two scientists watched as Doyobi opened the back and dragged out a body bag. Do you need a hand? asked Larry. No response, so the two men walked back to their quarters trying to avoid eye contact with the stranger and paged the captain to tell him they were nearly ready to go. Meanwhile, the bodies filled the cells below. In the morning, body one would get the first go of the brain. Body number one. It had been 34 hours since the transplant, and all signs pointed to vital. The only trouble was the body didn't seem to be taking in any information. Everyone sat in the learning room, observing it, trying to garner a response. Sally held up flashcards and repeated words. Dave fiddled in the background with machinery, and Larry just stared out the window at the open ocean. The body began to dribble, and Sally tended to it. Dave brought over some soup and slowly fed it to the body, which managed to swallow. This drew Larry's attention, until a few seconds later, the body vomited it back up, all down its front. They spent the next few hours with nothing and decided to give it a rest. All three were nervous, maybe the brain hadn't been programmed right. Dave blamed Rolf, but Larry blamed himself. They all retired for a couple of hours, leaving Doyobi to watch over the body with strict instructions to alert them if anything went awry. About three hours went by and Larry rested restlessly before a knock on his cabin door. In a thick Japanese accent came Doyobi's voice. It wakes. They all gathered in the learning room to find the body crouched on the floor, shivering. Sally scowled at Doyobi. What have you done to him? She yelled and rushed to the body's aid. They picked it up and put it in a chair, and they noticed the body was crying. Doyobi shook his head. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. The body convulsed a little, weeping away, but all of a sudden, Larry smiled. We've done it. It has feelings, see? We've done it! That night, they opened a bottle of champagne and all sat around and had a toast. Doyobi refused, but still sat with them. Sally tried to include him in the conversation. There was so much buzz. This was an important day. The day that biology and technology became one. The day a computer gained a soul. They called it a night. They needed to get some rest before the next day's surgery. Body number two. "'Remembers anything from what we've already taught it in the last body?' asked Sally. "'Oh, most definitely,' said Dave. "'It must.' He pulled out what looked like a board game from a cupboard. It contained a kid's electroshock game. "'Why use medical equipment when you can use kids' toys?' he said. They all took a handle piece and gave one to the body. The idea was that when a light came on the central pod, the first to squeeze the trigger delivered a small electric shock to the other contestants. Dave switched it on and they began to play. Larry won the first couple, but then it seemed Sally got the hang of it. Dave became frustrated with the whole thing and grumpy that he wasn't winning. After about 15 minutes, though, it became apparent that the body started to win. And then, after 20 minutes or so, only the body was winning. After 30, all three were rather fed up with being shocked, and Sally went off to record some results. Dave stared at the body. Who do you think he was? The body. Not not the brain, but the body that's carrying it, he said. "'I've no idea. He looks nice, though. Like a gentleman,' said Larry. "'Should we name him?' asked Dave. "'I guess we should, but if we do, the name stays with the brain, not the body. We don't want to confuse it. Any ideas?' "'Well, it would be too obvious to go with Adam or Eve. "'I guess because the physicals of it are identical to Rolf's, it's going to be a boy.' Larry nodded. He looked out the door to Doyobi, and for the first time, a thought crossed his mind. "'The bodies were from Japan, but why were they not Japanese-looking? "'They, in fact, looked distinctly Western.' Where had the organisers found Doyobi and who was he? Larry decided not to say anything. He didn't want the others to start having the same paranoid thoughts. Maybe they were sharing the journey with a killer. Douglas, said Sally. What a boring name. Well, it's friendly and memorable. I thought we could name him after Douglas Hofstarter. Who even is that? Said Larry. Google it if you don't know. Jeez, last time I come up with a suggestion. No, no... It's good. Douglas, it is, said Sally, as she turned to the body. Hi, Douglas. The lower lip of the body quivered. It breathed out and tried to form a word. Hello. Again, that night, the champagne came out. The next day, words came flowing out of the body's mouth, and all it was was questions. It was all very exciting, and some of it very abstract the kind of abstract thought that previously could only come out of a human. "'Why can't I feel anything in my elbow-skin?' said Douglas. "'How does the boat part the water in front of it?' said Douglas. "'Why does it hurt when I bite my tongue?' said Douglas. "'If I blow, why does all the paper in front of me move?' said Douglas. The questions flowed quick and fast, and the answers seemed to absorb at a great rate. Douglas was learning, and he was learning quickly. Sally was having trouble recording everything, times, tapes, sound files, labels, it was all happening almost too quickly for her. Larry was so pleased with the overwhelming progress that continued. Far too soon it seemed it was again time for surgery. It was only a matter of time before the brain rejected the already deceased body, and both would be lost. They made preparations for the surgery, but just before they sent the body under, it asked one final question. Why have you killed me? Body number three. Sally stood on a ladder peeling gherkin slices off the ceiling. Larry swept up broken crockery while Dave was in the corner trying to grab a broken fire extinguisher out of Douglas's hand. Debris covered the floor and walls. The situation was more chaotic than any of them were used to. Douglas swung the fire extinguisher and accidentally let it go. It careered across the room through a glass pane and out into the corridor. Larry stood up and looked through the smash hole and decided to give up on the crockery dropping the full dustpan as he went. Douglas decided to go out a window, now looking out over the water. "'I want to go for a swim!' he yelled as he darted towards the door. All three began to chase him as he ran about the ship, through corridors and bulkhead doors, up ladders, but none of them could stop him. He came to the side of the boat, but kept going, as if he were trying to find the highest point of the ship to dive into the water from. "'If he dives, that's the end of it!' yelled Dave. All three now pushed themselves to catch him, and eventually Larry managed to slip his fingers around an ankle. Douglas came crashing to the ground, head first, and, almost immediately, he sat up in surprise. It took him a second to work out what had happened to him, and in a moment his face went from surprise and confusion to tears and despair. He sat there on the upper deck, crying like a baby. Dave went up to him and tried to comfort him, picking him up and nursing him back down towards the lower deck and the labs. When they got back, Larry continued to clean, while Dave and Sally tried to console Douglas. Not much was working, and Douglas would in turn blame each of them for how he was feeling. "'You did it on purpose!' he would yell at Larry, or "'Why didn't you stop him?' to Sally. He didn't seem to respond well to Dave, though, and eventually they stopped the crying and Douglas managed to calm himself. He wiped the tears off his face and collar and then got up and went to sulk in the corner of the room. "'Why are you all so worried about me anyway?' he said. "'We created you,' said Larry. "'You're worth a lot of money to us.' "'Is that all I'm worth to you, Larry?' Of course not, but you must understand, we still have no idea what we've created in you. I don't know how to deal with you. You seem to be learning like a real person, but how much do you realise you're actually a robot? Do you know that? You're not like us, said Larry. What was that? said Douglas. I said, you're not human, not like us. No, said Douglas. I mean, what was that sound? Sally and Dave pricked up their ears, but no one could hear anything unusual. Douglas tensed up and began to rise with all the concentration of a household cat stalking a wandering beetle. He slunk towards the door. He walked with purpose, but absolute caution, and the others decided to follow him. Slowly, he crept past the operating theatre and down towards the seven holding cells. He passed the first two where the discarded corpses now lay, and stopped outside his own cell, to which the door was still open. Quickly, he ducked his head in and had a look around, but soon pulled back out into the corridor. His attention then went to door number four. As quietly as he could, he snuck up to it and cupped his hand to it, then turned his head to listen. Frozen, he stood there listening, shushing the others, who were watching intently. "'Can I help?' came Doyobi's voice from up the corridor, which caused them all to start. He thought he could hear something in the cell. "'I'm sure it's nothing,' said Dave. "'I could hear scratching,' said Douglas. "'You know what's in there?' said Doyobi. "'There's a dead man.' Nothing in there that scratches. He gave them a look that seemed to ask if there were any other questions, and they took this as a cue to go back to the learning room. Hours and hours later, not too long before the surgery, Douglas said something rather peculiar. That Japanese man, I know him. I feel like I know him. Do you all trust him? I feel like I used to trust him, but that now I shouldn't. Keep an eye on him and lock your doors at night. They all went to bed to be rested for the morning surgery. Larry couldn't sleep much, though. All night he thought he could hear a scratching sound and footsteps. He locked the door to his cabin and he grabbed a small statuette off the window ledge and kept it in his hand just in case he needed a weapon. The morning came too soon, and he found that all was well as he woke, and he replaced the weapon back near the window. Body number four. Dave listened in horror as Douglas began his oration. Religious men could never do what you have done. Their trouble is that they believe in the soul. The brain works on two levels, not by soul but by electronic impulses. The brain uses both of these levels simultaneously and infinitely and imperceptibly and constantly as a loop. Dave scribbled on a bit of paper and passed it to Sally. It read, Sound familiar? (laughs) We've created another pretentious moron. Douglas continued, The imagination is perhaps the third level of all this, where the brain takes all the information and uses it to create its own weird truths, a way of coping with all the things the other two levels just can't explain. Larry looked puzzled. He interrupted Douglas. Sorry, could we have a moment, Douglas? I need to chat to my colleagues. Larry took the others out onto the quarter-deck. He paced a bit before he began to speak. I'm worried. Really worried. Douglas's memory is behaving very strangely. Did you hear what he was just saying? That- That was Rolf. Almost word for word. Then there was yesterday when he seemed to recognise Doyobi. This isn't what I expected at all. Rolf was for brain functionality only. The memories we created were all supposed to be new. Well, the brain has met Doyobi a few times. I think that's normal, said Sally. True, said Larry. We never wanted him to be like Rolf, though. You can say that again, said Dave. I think we need to see exactly what he remembers. Let's put the training away for a minute and question him. See what we can dig out of his subconscious, said Sally. They went back in and Sally decided to take the front seat. Dave and Larry sat at the back, adjusting the recording equipment and scribbling everything down. ''We have a few questions. Is that okay, Douglas?'' said Sally. ''Of course,'' he said. ''Okay, where were you born?'' ''Hobart, Tasmania, in a computer, then I was built in Nagasaki, Japan.'' ''Oh, good. How old are you?'' Douglas looked at his arms and tested the tightness of the skin on the back of his hand. ''I'd say about 37 years old,'' he replied. I see, and what's your favourite food, she asked. Asparagus. Just like Rolf, Dave whispered to Larry. Which is your favourite part of the ship, asked Sally. Oh, I don't like boats, I prefer the open road. Do you like music? Well, I don't know much music. What is three times two? Um, seven, or six. What are our names? Well, you're Sally. He's Dave, and he's Larry. Sally, I think I'm supposed to be in love with you, but I don't feel like I am. I'll check later. Also, there's Doyobi, but I don't see him here. Sally blushed a little, but in the back of her mind, wondered if he was recognising the difference between male and female and the attraction towards the opposite sex. Perhaps this was a good sign. So you know Doyobi, then? She asked. Yes, I don't like him. He's the one that killed me. Me and the others in the cells. We were out off the coast of Nagasaki in our fishing boat. Me and my mates... Convinced me to come along, I always hated the water, save the whales, that kind of thing. They convinced me, although I'm not politically minded, I just needed to get out. So the whaling vessel came up and it harpooned our boat and he dragged us in. It was him, alone on the ship. And there he kept us alive for a while until it was time. And then he killed two of my friends. And then he drugged me and Sam and put us in body bags. I woke up yesterday and he came into my cell and killed me in the night. A lump grew in Larry's throat. Sally and Dave both turned their own shade of pale. All three now realised what they'd gotten themselves into. Toyobi was a killer, and he had been keeping the bodies as fresh as possible. It was Dave who eventually decided the best thing to do would be to open up the cells and let out the other victims. If they hurried, they might just make it in time. Sally went to the engine room to find something to wrench the doors open with, and Dave got his pliers out and tried to free one of the emergency axes without breaking the glass. He was successful and armed himself in case Doyobi tried to stop them. Larry was in a general panic, and he decided to arm himself again with the statuette. He couldn't believe it, but somehow the brainless body had held some memory in it somewhere and could recall exactly what had happened to it through the synthetic brain they had transferred to it. Elsewhere in the ship, Doyobi sat quietly, watching the others on a closed circuit TV. Sally returned with a crowbar. They went first to door number seven and tried to tease it open. It took all three to finally open the door and with a mighty pop the thing came loose. Dave fell to the ground with the crowbar in his hand. It was Larry who decided to make the first move inside to free whoever was in there. Sally followed closely and Dave picked the axe back up and stood watch. He waited nervously, looking up and down the corridor for any sign of life. Larry came out a moment later. Empty, he said. Sally emerged too, and hadn't found a trace of anyone. Just an empty bed. They decided to check the next cell. Once again, it took a lot of effort to bust the door open. This time Dave and Sally went in, but once again they discovered it uninhabited. They made for door number four, the final door. A voice came from behind. You're not going to like whatever you find in there. Trust me. It was Douglas's voice. He stood at the door to the learning room, observing the scientists. Dave walked up to him and pushed him back into the room, slamming the door in his face. Axe in hand, he managed to clip the lock of the final cell just right so that the door was opened. Once again, the cell was entirely empty. Douglas was right, and Larry didn't like it. He didn't like it one bit. Three empty cells, ready to house three fresh bodies. He looked at the other two, and wondered who would be first. So, that was The Freight of Your Life. One of my short stories from Roger's Guide to the Coffee Shops of Soho. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to get in touch. Contact at headstock.online. Uh, That should uh, flick me an email and if you really want to and you're feeling very generous then you can go and support my Patreon which is Alex Dick Writing. Um, You'll find it there. I'm trying to currently, it's sort of late August 2017, um, I'm currently trying to fund a book that I'm writing at the moment called Acid Redux. Um, You can read all about it there. Okay, that's all for today. Enjoy!